The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. I titled this sermon just 40 days later. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, <clears throat> David mercifully spared King Saul's life when Saul wandered into the cave that David was hiding in. Saul was hunting David down. <clears throat> but if you remember the story, David, David spared Saul. It was an amazing show of mercy. Yet in the very next chapter, David became enraged and was ready to kill a man named Nabal because he refused to help him with some supplies. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter told Jesus that he knew he was the Christ, the son of the living God. Not 10 verses later, Peter rebuked Jesus for teaching about his death. And Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. On Jesus's final night on this earth, Peter boldly promised to die for the Lord. It was a very courageous promise. A few hours later, Peter denied three times even knowing Jesus. I'm not picking on David. I'm not picking on Peter. We should see ourselves in their stories. How quickly we fail God. But he never fails us. We have one moment that's victorious, and the next is a complete and utter failure. But God is merciful, and Jesus never stops loving us. This morning's text in Exodus 32 reminds us of how quickly we fail. We have a lot to cover today. We're going to go through the entire chapter. I could preach four or five sermons uh, from this chapter, but we're going to move quickly. We're going to hit the high points Really briefly, let me set the scene, and you remember it. God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptian slavery. He led them to the base of Mount Sinai, where he has descended in fire and dark clouds. The earth has quaked. The people are so afraid and so frightened by the scene that they told Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. You tell us what he said, and we'll listen. And so Moses ascended the mountain. And he received more details of the law from God. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Actually, if you'll back up to chapter 31, and let's just read verse 18 as we sort of jump back into the story. So verse 18 of chapter 31 reads, And he, that's God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. I don't remember who told me this, but someone said, you know, this is the word of God, the whole Bible. But God personally wrote that part. <laughs> he used men to write the rest, work through them. This final verse of chapter 31 is a pretty remarkable verse. God had revealed more of the law to Moses and had personally engraved the testimony on these two tablets we won't spend a lot of time there. We'll move into the next chapter. While all of that was going on, at the base of the mountain, 
the people are growing restless. So let's look at the first seven verses of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron refused and taught them the truth. It's not what the Bible says. Verse 2, So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We'll stop there at verse, uh, verse 6. This truly is one of the most unbelievable stories in the Bible. And by that, I, of course, don't mean it's untrue in that sense. It's just absolutely baffling and bewildering that this is the same group of people who roughly a month and a half earlier agreed to do everything God said in chapter 19. They agreed again in chapter 24 to obey God. This is the same group of people who who witnessed God descend upon Mount Sinai, who were frightened by the fire, who were scared of his voice and overwhelmed by his demands. They begged Moses to intercede. We're not even two months later and all of that is gone. Their hearts have completely changed and they willfully and knowingly rebel against God. Before we get into the sin, I want you to just consider for a minute that the scene has not changed. They're still encamped at Mount Sinai. I believe the smoke and the fire are still around the mountain. The Bible definitely never indicates that those manifestations have stopped. And in Exodus 24, verse 17 we read the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And it's in that same context that talks about the people seeing this devouring fire that mentions Moses is on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the presence of God that frightened them so much a month and a half earlier no longer did. How, how is that? Why is that? I think one potentially pretty simple answer is that they just grew accustomed to it. They were calloused. They were desensitized. Uh, initially, the fire and the smoke and the earthquaking were, all of that was pretty overwhelming. But day after day, oh yeah, the mountain's still on fire. Day after day, eventually their fear gave way to familiarity. And I think the same thing can happen in our lives and in our worship if we're not careful. 
We need to be on guard that things like praying and reading our Bible and coming to church and hearing about Jesus do not become boring or meaningless or lackluster or ineffective in our lives. We must never lose our awe for God. Never lose our love for his word or our amazement at the gospel. No matter how many times we've heard it. No matter how many times we've come to church. If we become desensitized to the power of God, don't be surprised when we disobey. Because our, our reverence, our fear should lead to obedience. What's amazing, though, is that even if we become desensitized to God, he never does to us. He loves us and he cares for us every single day. Do you know what the Israelites ate for breakfast that morning? They ate manna. Have you ever considered that the very day they made the golden calf, God miraculously fed them with manna as he had been doing the whole time? Wow. And God knew that they were going to rebel and make that calf that day. And he provided anyway. Isn't he amazing? Be thankful that God loves us and provides for us when we don't deserve it. The Jews had clearly become callous to this powerful scene. But the text also specifically mentions uh, maybe two other things that led to this disobedience. One is they felt Moses was, uh, was delayed. And that they didn't know what had become of them. So maybe those two things worked together. They were impatient and they didn't know about Moses. Maybe this consuming fire consumed him. We don't know. So they were unsure about the status of their mediator. That's something you never have to worry about with Jesus Christ. Three days after his crucifixion... He was resurrected for all eternity. We don't have to wonder about what has become of him. He sits at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for us. We also don't have to worry about him being delayed and coming back down. We may feel like he's delayed because of our timetable, because of our perspective on time. But Jesus will come again at the perfect and the right time. Peter teaches us that God has a different perspective on time than we do. And he is far more patient than we would ever be. Every day that Jesus does not come again is another day where a sinner can repent and trust him. But there's absolutely nothing to worry about with Jesus Christ, the true mediator. But the Jews were worried about Moses. And with him presumably out of the picture, what we might say is they reverted back to their Egyptian ways. Notice they asked Aaron to make them gods, plural, which we could take as just a rejection of monotheism. They still had polytheistic tendencies in their hearts. Decades later, Joshua is still dealing with this polytheism, even when they're about to take the promised land. Perhaps worse... Then the people, to me, was Aaron himself, who was a completely inept and spineless leader. 
I read a commentary that half joked about him being a terrible associate pastor. <laughs> I just kind of chuckled with that terminology. Thankfully, we don't have that issue. We're very blessed. But Aaron here as Moses' helper, he didn't help that much. He's part of the problem. He offered no rebuttal, no rebuke, no teaching. Instead, he helped the people sin, and he put forth a lot of effort to make it happen. It's a big undertaking to gather gold from potentially two million people. Then you have to take all that gold. You have to melt it down. It has to be cooled. It has to be fashioned and molded. This didn't happen in 30 minutes. Did Aaron never feel convicted throughout this whole process? The Bible really doesn't say anything about that, but I want to offer a thought based upon verse 4 and 5. Notice in verse 4, this golden calf is given credit for something the true God did. These are the gods that delivered you up from Egypt. How blasphemous is that? And then look at verse 5. Notice the name given to this golden calf idol. Aaron said, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord. And if you notice in your Bible, it's probably all capital letters which means it's the covenant name Yahweh. My thought is that Aaron knew this was wrong, but he's justifying his actions by claiming that this young bull at least represents Yahweh. So what's wrong with that? We're not worshiping a, a false Egyptian god or goddess who may have been represented by a cow. And there were several in Egypt that uh, deities that were sort of cow deities. This one's Yahweh, though. So we're still worshiping the true God. No, you're not. Not to mention the previous polytheistic statements of the people, but even if they claimed to be worship, worshiping Yahweh, the true God, they were not doing so according to His divine given standard. Just 40 days ago, every single Israelite heard the first and second commandments. Have no other gods before me. Do not make any graven images. It's wrong to do that even if you name the image Yahweh. One reason it's wrong is because there's nothing that man can make that can come remotely close to capturing who God is. He's far too big and brilliant to be reduced down to a golden statue that you made with a bunch of earrings. Did they honestly think they could build something to represent the God who destroyed Egypt and who descended on this mountain and shook it to death? Aaron and the Israelites should have known the unsearchableness of Yahweh with everything they had seen in the past year dating all the way back to the plagues in Egypt. It didn't take long after receiving the Ten Commandments before we have this tragic story of nationwide rebellion in which they break at least the first two commands. There may have been other ones being broken during this time. There's some disagreement about the extent of immorality that was going on during the feast the next day. Um, I tend to think it was pretty immoral. Um, there's disagreement on that, and that's okay. Most polytheistic pagan festivals were, were pretty immoral. Uh, there's definitely some pagan singing and dancing going around as they're sacrificing to this idol. And with all of this wickedness going on, 
you think back to Moses. Moses is on the mountain in the presence of God, receiving these divine instructions, and that's what the people are doing down here. So look at verse 7 through 14. God knows what's going on, and he's going to let Moses know about it. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is a really sad story, obviously, but there's a little bit of humor to me in verse 7 when God lets Moses know what's going on. Do you notice that he said, Moses, these are your people that you brought up out of Egypt. I had nothing to do with this. It's, to me, it's like a parent, you know, when the child acts good, that's my boy. You know, that's, that's my daughter. But when they're bad, he's your son. You know, God's telling, telling Moses, these are your people. He called them stiff-necked people. This is the first time in the Bible that this phrase stiff-necked is used to describe Israel. And it becomes a very common phrase used to describe them. And it gives the picture of a stubborn farm animal that refuses to obey its master. The yoke is on the oxen, but it fights and it pulls and it, it, won't, it won't be guided. And that's the, the imagery here of Israel. She's just stubbornly refusing to do what her master is telling her to do. Now, God is righteously angry with their sinfulness. He threatened to consume them and start all over with Moses, which if he had done, he could have still kept the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because Moses was a descendant of them. But Moses pleaded for the people. The word implored in verse 11, it's a really intense word and it gives us an idea of how, just how emphatic Moses' imploring was. The word has the idea of reaching up your hands to somebody's face, almost like you're rubbing their cheeks. It's as if Moses reached up and said, oh, please don't do this. Now, he didn't literally, you know, grab God by the face, but it just shows the intensity that he implored. And God mercifully responded, did he not? He relented from the disaster. In verse 14, if you have a King James translation, you see the word repented. It's not the same Hebrew word that describes man's repentance. That this does not mean that God was doing something wrong and he repented and turned back to righteousness. 
But I've mentioned from time to time, this is a word that shows deep emotion. And so what happened here is that God is ready to judge the people righteously. They are sinning. But when Moses begs for God to be merciful, God looks down and lets out a deep, divine, compassionate sigh of mercy. <sighs> okay, Moses, I'll forgive. I'll show mercy. And he does not go through with the disaster. But let's read verse 15 through 24. The sinful situation does need to be dealt with. So Moses goes down the mountain. Let's read 15 through 24. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. God revealed the people's sin to Moses, and Moses implored God. But once Moses saw it with his own eyes when he came back down the mountain... He was so angry that he threw down the tablets that God had engraved and he broke them. And the word in verse 19 for, for broke is an intense word that you could translate shattered, destroyed. They were, they were broken to pieces. I think that demonstrates not only what, what we might call Moses' righteous indignation. I think he was right to be angry just as God was. But the tablets being broken is a very graphic way of showing what we already know. The Israelites had already broken the covenant. They couldn't even last two months. Did not take long before there was nationwide rebellion. When Moses came down, he confronted Aaron. What did they do to you? that you brought such sin into the camp? Did, did they threaten you? Did they blackmail you? What happened? And Aaron, did you notice how he justified his actions again? He blamed the people. You know how they are, Moses. He took no responsibility as their leader. And then he skipped over the entire fashioning process. Look, I put the gold in the fire and out popped this calf. It was a miracle. How could we not worship something that just popped up like this? It was supernatural. Moses knew better than that. 
Aaron and the rest of the Israelites had broken their end of the covenant. God would forgive, but there were still consequences. So let's look at verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 25 through 29. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go out to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The tribe of Levi rallied around Moses, and they answered this call to be on God's side which to me has always begged the question, why did every single Israelite not rally to Moses and say, we, are, we were wrong, but yes, we're on God's side now. It's just the tribe of Levi. And so the Levites executed. They did not murder. This was divine judgment being carried out. They executed about 3,000 people that day who were obviously grossly and unrepentantly involved with the idolatry and with this whole process, perhaps even still um, doing immoral things that went along with pagan worship. Since the Levites responded to God, God responded favorably to them. God modified, if we could say that way, or added to the covenant to bring about the Levitical priesthood. This story right here is why Levi became the priestly tribe. It was an honor given to them. We could think of it this way. Just as they defended the Lord's honor that day, they would be charged with defending his honor throughout, throughout time. They would be charged with guarding true worship in Israel from that day forward. So let's read the, first, or the final verses of the chapter. We see Moses' heart for the people once again, as well as God's mercy to give them another chance. Verse 30, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. In spite of the people's sins, Moses once again interceded for them. I love that he did not minimize their sin. He didn't go to God and act like it wasn't that big a deal. He said, they've sinned a great sin. This was evil. He admitted it, but he loved them enough. He loved them to the extent that he offered to take their place. If you'll forgive them, that's wonderful. If not, blot me out of your book. He was willing to die for the people. 
God would not accept that. He would not accept Moses' death for, for the sins of Israel. They would be responsible for their own actions. And some of that came in the form of this plague at the end of the camp, uh, that came through the camp at the end of the chapter. The phrase in verse 35 of sent a plague, it's really, it's very sad in this story because it carries the overtone of divine judgment. And it was used multiple times earlier in Exodus to describe what God did to the Egyptians. It's the same phrase. And now God is having to do the same thing with his own people that he delivered. Because God is no respecter of persons. He is, however, very merciful. So even though the people broke the covenant, God was going to give them another chance. And he commanded Moses to get up and go take them to the land I've promised. How quickly we fail. But God never does. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we close. I want, to, I want to read a very important passage in the New Testament that links this story and some of the other stories of, Israelites, uh, of the Israelite failures, links it to our own lives. Because if we read these stories and we just laugh and point our fingers at those sorry Israelites, we've missed the whole point of why they were recorded for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 7 that we just read is a specific reference to the golden calf incident that we looked at today. Paul noted in verse 11 and 12 that that story and many others that he referenced in this list, they were written for our instruction which simply means we should learn from these stories and be warned not to do the same things in our lives. You don't have to make a mistake to know it's wrong. Here's an extreme example. Don't go drive drunk just to see if it's bad. You can know it's bad 
because of how it has affected the lives of other people. Even killed many people. You don't have to make the mistake personally. The same thing is true here. Don't become an immoral idolater who has no respect for God's standards. So I'm just going to try that out and see what happens. And if it's bad, I'll know it. It's bad. Learn from Israel's mistakes. And if you're arrogant enough to think, well, that would not be me, brother man. I would never do that. I would never just disobey God like that when I already know what he has said. You're on a really slippery slope then. Look at verse 12 one more time. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. After David showed such mercy to King Saul, I'm sure nobody could imagine David as this rage-filled warlord. But it happened in the very next chapter. I'm sure nobody could see Peter, the boldest of all disciples, actually denying Jesus. But it happened just hours later. The Israelites saw the very presence of God descend upon a mountain and they heard his voice. Surely those people would never lose their respect for him. It's easy to pick on the Israelites here. It's low-hanging fruit. It's just, we read this story and we just, it baffles us. But the story's for our benefit. How quickly do we fail God after leaving church on Sunday morning and we feel revived and renewed and we're ready to obey? But then here comes Monday. Or maybe here comes Sunday afternoon. How often have we made promises to God that we've broke? How often are there things in our lives that are more important to us than God? How quickly we fail him. But he never fails us. He is always faithful. We cannot thank him enough for his grace and his mercy and his patience in our lives that he ultimately gives to us through his son, Jesus Christ. I mentioned just a minute ago that Moses was ready to die for the people, but God didn't want that. He would not accept Moses' death on their behalf, but he has accepted Jesus' death on your behalf. That's the one substitutionary death that matters. It's the only substitutionary death there is. According to Hebrews, Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. If you'll trust Jesus as your Savior, you'll be a child of God. You'll be forgiven. You'll be granted eternal life and you will never have to fear the eternal consequences of sin ever, ever again. If you've never trusted in Jesus, I pray that you'll trust him today before it's too late. In Exodus 32, Moses eventually came back down the mountain and there were consequences. I don't know when it will be, it seems to be getting closer. It obviously is closer every day. Jesus is coming again. And there will be consequences when he comes down for those who do not trust him. So don't wait. Trust him today. Let's stand.
bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for recording these stories for our benefit. I pray that we will learn from them not to be arrogant and to think that we could never make these mistakes, but Lord, help us to be warned. We do quickly fail you, but we're so thankful for your faithfulness, Lord. Forgive us when we fail you. Help us to be people who are humble, who love you, and who never lose our respect for who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for this church. I pray that if there's someone lost, that today would be the day of their salvation. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.